Thank you, Madison. Appreciate that offering. It's good to see you back up here. It's been a while. And speaking about being back up here, um, we have been striving to, you know, a- after COVID, which has decreased, thank the Lord for that. I appreciate your prayers because we're trying to ramp things back up. We're trying to get ministries um, back in order, like Sunday school and and uh, care groups. You know, what do they look like now? What does Sunday school will look like now? Things that we had to stop. Uh, traditions that we've we've um, we've practiced in the past. We're we're trying to f- sort all this out. So I appreciate your prayers as we continue to do that, um, and your willingness to to pray and to serve if the Lord calls. Also, before I jump into the passage this morning, just want to remind you there was a time during COVID when we didn't have bulletins because remember you can't touch each other and you can't touch paper and all that because of germs everywhere. But we have bulletins now and um, use them. There's important information in here. And I was just looking at it this morning. We used one of our traditions, believe it or not. We haven't done it for a long time. But if somebody had a birthday that went to this church, we sang happy birthday to you. Like so almost every Sunday, Corky Abernathy was starting us off in happy birthday to you. We don't do that anymore. It's a little bit, we have, we're trying to pack so much into a service. But there are birthdays listed on the back of the bulletin. And so we have people in here that will celebrate a birthday this week, uh, young and old. So if you happen to see them, wish them a happy birthday. We even have an anniversary. Corky and Diana Abernathy um, has to be like coming up on a hundred years. How long is it? 99 years. Oh, so 36, wow, 36 years. Good job, guys. Good job. Happy anniversary to you. So don't forget about our bulletins. And they also have a uh, truth from Royal Treasury, kind of a scripture for the day. You can use it also as a scripture for the week. But we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 3 this morning. We're going to look, begin with verse 5. And the first verses in chapter, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul had to do something he's, he doesn't really like to do, and that is he has, he's talking about himself, he's talking about his ministry, and the reason he has to talk about himself is because his ministry is under attack. There were false teachers, there were just agitators there that came into this new church, the church of Corinth that was planted in a, in a wicked city. But God prevailed in that. People were getting saved. But his authority was under attack. under attack, And so he had to defend himself. And last time we looked at uh, marks of what does it mean to be sufficient in your ministry. And the, the bottom question or the bottom line question that Paul was answering is, yeah, that's a good question. Who is sufficient? Who does God use for these kinds of ministries? Who does God use to wield such authority? Because when you... Preach something as simple as or share something as simple as the gospel, which Romans 1.16, that truth in the royal treasury this morning. You are basically dividing humanity into two groups, and that's the way God sees it. And there are those who embrace the good news of the gospel, and there are those who reject it. So it's, it's a, there's a powerful kingdom dynamic that takes place every time the gospel goes forth. 
For some, it's the aroma of life. For some, it's the aroma of death. So this is a very good and valid question. And his answer is that, well, our sufficiency to be ministers is from God. It's just from God. So anything that we do, it's not of ourselves. We don't give ourselves authority. It comes from God. He packs stuff in us and on us and works through us in the ways that he wants us to minister. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul would say that because this is a very capable guy. This is a very well-educated man. And, and he's got the zeal and the passion to back it. He used to zealously persecute the church. He's very adequate. And yet he says, actually, anything I have pertaining to ministry, it's, it's just from God. And it kind of piggybacks or expands that theme in Scripture that you come across constantly. And that is, we are empty and God fills us. We have to die to self in order to come alive to Christ. And you even see that in ministry. Paul doesn't credit anything of his own doing here. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a very, very important topic in Scripture, and that is the New Covenant. Uh, Paul brings it up to in this church because he thinks it's important that believers know the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because if it's not understood properly, the beauty of the Old Covenant can actually become a hindrance to the glory of the New Covenant. So it's on Paul's heart to get this straight. And I'm actually going to spend several weeks in this passage, the rest of chapter 3, so we can really take a, a look at God's promises to humanity, God's promises to the people of the earth. So Paul says, who has made us sufficient? Our sufficiency comes from God. But look at what God made him sufficient to do in verse 6. And I'm going to read the whole passage in just a second. But who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So there's, it's a specific equipping. There's a specific enabling that God has packed into Paul or placed into Paul. And that is to enable him to be a minister, a servant of the new covenant. Honestly, this is in my opinion, one of the richest teachings in this book. And you'll recall that 2 Corinthians is, um, doesn't have like any particular theme. It's just Paul talking about random church issues. Uh, but in doing that, certain themes do pop out. But the New Covenant is, this is very, very rich teaching. As a matter of fact, there's only one other place in Scripture that goes more, dives more comprehensively into the New Covenant. And that's the entire book of Hebrews which we have studied, actually it's been about, I think, 17 or 18 years ago when we looked at the book of <clears throat> Hebrews. That'll make you feel old this morning, won't it? If you're thinking, oh yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. You're old, you remember that. So of the, the new covenant Paul is going to tell us here, it's, it's an incredible promise. It's a glorious, it's the glory of glories, if you will, pertaining to what God has done, it is absolutely unmatched when you look at God's historical doings or events or miracles. 
what God packs into this promise and how God fulfills the promise of the new covenant is incredible. And I hope that as we slow down and take some time to look at this, that that each Sunday we will just be in awe of how God unfolds things, how loving He is, how merciful He is, and how... Uh, how good he is, if you will, at just bringing things to light that need to be dealt with so that his redemptive purposes can be served. That's a big topic, the New Covenant, because really it covers the entire Bible. Uh, we won't do that. Um, it, well, I'm going to take like an overview, look at it, but we're not going to look at the whole Bible. But the covenants cover the entire Bible. We find... Uh, hints of the new covenant all the way back in Genesis of what God's going to do. So that's why it's so important for us to take a dive in this and look at this. It pertains to the salvation of our souls. You know, and as, as New Testament believers, as a evangelical church, um, we're, I hope we're very clear on the gospel. And a lot of Christians will say, I'm clear on the gospel. But not so much on the new covenant. Well, the new covenant and the gospel are, are one and the same. You can't have one without the other. They, they, they work together. The, the, the good news comes out of the new covenant, the foundation of the new covenant. So well, we want to be clear on this and reveal what God has done in his servants and exactly what he's equipping Paul to do and perhaps what he's equipping us to do and equipping us to be at new covenant Fellowship, but as I said, it carries a lot. It, it covers a lot of biblical landscape. So what I want to do today is I just want to, if you will, fly a drone over it so that we can just kind of get an overview, a big picture of what Paul's talking about in the covenants, and then the remaining service, uh, sermons will will zoom in on specific aspects of it so that we can get a proper understanding. But let's read our passage, Second Corinthians. Chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 5 to pick up the context. And we're going to read through the rest of this chapter. And just listen carefully to what Paul has to say about the covenants. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Wow! Look at the truths that are just oozing out of that. That, that The freedom and, and the plan of God coming to fruition in this. There's so much in here. And there's sadness in here because there are people that still have the veil over their eyes. And yet there's, there's joy in here because the, the Spirit of the Lord has set others free and removed the veil so that they can live and enjoy the promises and the grace of God. Now, I hope you see where we got to spend a little bit of time in here unpacking all of that. There is nothing. Boy, he just keeps repeating himself. There is nothing more glorious than the new covenant. So we want to understand that because we in the new covenant, we can behold the glory of God as it is meant to be beheld, at least in part. Uh, when we reach paradise and the Lord returns, then in full. So there's still a little bit of fogginess here, but we get these glimpses. We get these beautiful tastes of how good God is and how glorious he is. So Paul says all this really in defending um, his ministry of all things. It just like it sparks a thought. And here's his, his line of reasoning. Remember, he was defending his ministry. And one of the, the challenges was, look. Paul doesn't even have credentials. He doesn't even have paperwork. He doesn't have the degrees or the authority from a higher source that that says he has permission to come and, and wield this authority and, and share these teachings. So his credentials, the paperwork was missing. And Paul's uh, rebuttal was, look, do I really need paperwork? Look, Corinthians, just think about, brothers and sisters, think about your lives. I came and I preached the gospel to you. You believe by the power of the Spirit of God, and God is transforming you. Therefore, you are my living letter. And there's, there's, there's something to say about written words and credentials and degrees. But you're backing the reality of it with your lives. So that's what he's thinking about. You don't even have to look at the credentials when you have the real thing. And that kind of gets his, his wheels Turning, verse 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the proof comes in what God is doing on the inside of their hearts. You, you can even, you can dress words up. Sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they aren't, but the real you comes out. Eventually the real you comes out. That's what Paul's saying. And the real you has been transformed by Christ. What other evidence do you Need, But now he says something. You have to kind of catch it in here because he makes this transition of, of thought. It sparks another thought. In verse 3, when he said, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. So he starts out talking about just paperwork, papyrus or whatever you, you wrote on in that day. He's talking about paperwork, but now he transitioned into not the paper versus the heart, but stone versus the heart. So what when you talk about the, the law 
spirit writing, the spirit of the living of God writing on tablets of stone, not on stone, but on hearts. When did God write on tablets of stone? In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, with the leader Moses. So he's made this little transition. God wrote something. It's the Ten Commandments. We find this in Exodus. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read a few passages for you. Exodus 31, 18. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. How cool is that? You know, written with the finger of God, engraved into stone. Then Exodus 32, 15 through 16 Then Moses turned and he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets there were written on both sides, if you ever wondered. Front and back. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. Engraved on tablets. That's fascinating. So it's God's law, it's God's will. It's God's word, and he he scratched it, etched it onto stone tablets for Moses. And this is the covenant that he's making with the people. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will live under this agreement, this promise. You will live under my standards and live according to my ways. These are terms of the covenant, and they're tablets of the testimony of stone. Paul's saying uh, that's not what's happening here in Corinth. What's happening here in Corinth under the new covenant is that the engraving of the finger of God is written not on this hard tablet of stone. It's still the same God, and it's still the same law, but now it's being engraved or inscribed directly into your heart. So it's internal now, the work of God, the covenant, the plan of God. It's, it's a work internally. And there's a huge difference in this that Paul wants us to know about. That's where he's going with us. It's a stark difference between God making a promise and giving something to his people externally, which they are to ascribe to, as opposed to doing an internal work. Again, it's the same law. The commandments haven't changed. It's what he wrote on the tablets. Now he writes on in human people. And if you are a believer, you have God's, uh, the, the work of God's Holy Spirit in your heart. That is not stone, but of flesh. And the Spirit is the Spirit of life and freedom. So it's the law here, it's the tablets, it's the Ten Commandments written on hearts, not stone. I want to just say something uh, I think that's important when we're thinking about this. We got to, as we think about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, a lot of times we think about these covenants in terms of works versus grace because God gave them the law to keep and you would... You were saved by works, or in order to be saved, you had to do the works of obedience. Whereas the New Covenant talks about, no, you're saved by grace. It's just an act of God. Because there are those that make a huge difference, even in today's church, between a covenant of law and a covenant of grace. And go so far as to say that, 
now we're under grace. Uh, we don't have to be obedient. Not, not just that it doesn't depend on our obedience, but we don't even have to be obedient because it's all covered by grace. Uh, that, that was a problem even in the churches. Corky brought that up in his study on Galatians. Um, it's antinomianism, where you take the grace of God so far as to believe that you don't even the, the law of God doesn't even have an effect on you. Something that, ironically, we still struggle with in today's trying to grapple and understand Scripture. But I just want to make sure we understand as we look through this that you know the grace of God or what God did in the New Covenant by inscribing His law onto our hearts, and it is by grace. It's totally undeserved. The question, and I'll put it in a few different ways, does God's grace excuse us from obeying, obeying the law? Or does God's grace enable us to obey the law? Because I'm, even today, you, you will run into people eventually that will struggle with this. This idea of grace. What is the function of grace? Oh, he's freed us. Salvation by grace. We don't have to obey the Lord. Well, that's true. That's true. We are saved strictly by grace and not by our obedience. But what does that mean? How does that play out? It sounds like a quick question. Let me put it this way. Is it God's will that we exhibit his grace by continuing in sin? So that... Um, so that we can just be forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. God just keeps pouring grace on our disobedience and our wickedness. Or is it God's will that by God's grace we strive to conform our lives to his law, to holiness and to goodness? See, there's a difference in outcome. Does God's grace, put it even more starkly, does God's grace give us the freedom and even encourage us to sin so that we can say, look how gracious God is, look how evil I am, and I'm still going to heaven. Or is the function or purpose of God's grace to transform us? Yes, you're going to heaven, and but in the meantime, I've written my law on your heart, and the whole idea of what you're going to become in heaven, perfect and holy, I'm going to begin by my grace to make you that way now. You're conforming to the image of Christ now. That's sanctification. So we want to be clear about this, that the grace of God not only saves us, but is, is active in sanctifying us. So we still don't take the credit for it. We're only sufficient in Christ. But that's the purpose. It, it's not merely to cover our sin, which it absolutely does, but it also enables us to repent of our sin and enables us to overcome sin. Not completely, but substantially. I know there's people in here, I know in my own life, uh, am I completely sanctified after 37, I think, years of salvation? Uh, no, I still have a lot of things to work on. But if, if I started here in my journey, am I any holier than I was when I got saved? Oh, yeah. And you benefit from it, trust me. You benefit. Everybody that knows me benefits from my salvation experience. Because it's the power and the grace of God in my life. <clears throat> the laws that God gave to Moses and inscribed on those stones, what did they do? They confronted the people with a standard, with God's standard. Here's what life is about. When it comes to behavior, 
This is what your life should look about. Look like this is my standard. You have to come up to this. And get out of that. Come up to this. These standards. This is how you love me, worship me, and love one another and treat one another. But what did they actually do? Well, they wound up condemning the people of God. Because uh, God's children or God's chosen people, the Israelites. Because they couldn't keep them. They couldn't attain to the standard. And it sounded great. Wow, everybody would love to live like this. Then we wouldn't have any evil. We wouldn't have any stress in our relationships. Everything would be great. And so they're, they're high and lofty. They're good and holy. But they really wound up just condemning people because the people of God kept falling short. So the Old Testament gives this great, holy, wonderful standard of God's law. But what it did not do was enable the God's people to keep it. It didn't enable them to keep it. So because they couldn't keep it, then it really served to condemn them. The stone, God's law, was on the outside of man as opposed to on the inside. And it sounds terrible. It sounds like a terrible place to be, but God had a plan. It's not where he leaves people. He had a plan. So let's look at the plan. He's already talking about the days of a new covenant and a better covenant back in the days of the Israelites with the prophets. So let's look at a very couple common passages. Jeremiah 31. God tells this to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So it's it's the same law. It's the same God. But this time God's going to do something different. He's going to go take it on the inside, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 11, 19 through 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then again in Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 through 28. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So you see, God has this plan. He understands the predicament. As a matter of fact, as we unfold this, you'll see that the old covenant was written to reveal to man his predicament. Hey, wait a minute. That's really great that you have all these laws, but I can't do them. Try as I may. We'll look at that. In the days to come. So the result of the new covenant. It solves this problem. And it puts God's law in our hearts. And enables us to obey 
the law of the Lord. That's a huge difference here. And in that day, it says the day will come. Well, the day has come. And we are under the days of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So, Paul wants to make sure that these new believers understand this because it really affects the way we live our lives for Christ. Now, here was the problem, a big problem in the churches, is that what they would call Judaizers would come into these new communities of Christ believers. And where it got so dangerous is is that they didn't say, oh, no, Christ isn't the true Messiah. They say, yes, you need to believe in Christ, and here's how you do it. You continue to practice the ceremonies. That point to him. You continue to practice the rituals and the rites. So, yeah, believe in Christ. He is God's Messiah. But here's how you worship him. You just continue to act or you continue to behave according to the ceremonies of the Old Testament that points to Christ. So it's Christ plus this and not only Christ. Well, that's a a problem. Especially for new believers. I don't know about you, but when I was a new believer, I was really naive. Because God had changed my heart. He opened my eyes to things. And I was like, anything that had to do with God, I wanted. Then I found out, uh, you can't trust everything that people tell you about God. You can't trust everything you read about God. It's a little more complicated than that. But I wanted to. I thought, wow, God just eradicated sin, so Christians don't sin, so I can trust everything Christians say. We have to be careful. We still have to stay on our toes. The church had to stay on their toes here. But yeah, believe in Christ, you still got to be circumcised. You believe in Christ, but you, got, you can't eat that. Believe in Christ, but there's a day we have to observe here. And Paul calls that foolish thinking. He calls it going back Look, the Spirit sets you free. Why would you go back to these things that just point to what He is doing in your life today? Colossians two sixteen through 7. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. They, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So they, the Old Testament served its purpose at pointing the light or shining the light on the glories of Christ. And so you don't go back and worship or practice the signs and the signals now that the real thing is here. Very dangerous thing that um, the, the Jewish people understandably had a hard time with because this was their whole culture and their lives. But it's just a shadow of the things to come and now it has come. So... The law of God written on our hearts. One of the reasons that it gets so difficult to understand this is because when Scripture talks about the law of God, it it uses it to define different things. It's not always like talking about the same law. So, for instance, I think the not a perfect way, I won't spend much time on this right now, but not a perfect way, but a great way to understand it is that you have like this big family. This word law covers three different things. And it's been described to cover the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, the civil law, which is the laws that God gave Israel to call them out to be different than the pagan nations and to preserve them that. 
and then the ceremonial law, which are all the laws about the priests and worship in the temple and so forth. But one word often is used to describe the law, and so you got to kind of think about, well, what law is he talking about? Well, here, clearly, I hope you see that he's talking about the Ten Commandments because that's what was written on the tablets. But the civil laws were for God's chosen people. They were only for Israel. He gave them judges. He gave them laws to keep the social order. So, you know, what happens to you when you break a moral law? There were judgments. There were sentences given to you. What happens when you, when you ride your donkey through the city 30 miles an hour and the speed limit's only 20 miles an hour? What do you got to do then? You know, those kind of things to keep order. You had a ceremonial... Um, you had ceremonial laws in the priests, what they had, who could be a priest, who could do what in the temple, what you had to wear, all the washings that represented holiness and how unworthy man was, but how pure God is. All the ceremonies with that in the days and so forth. Infections going outside the camp. These are all shadows. They're all images and signs that were given only to the people of God, not the whole world. Only to the people of God to make them distinct, to make them separate. But when you're talking about those things have passed, but when you're talking about the new covenant, it's the moral law. So we, we, have, to, we have to take the ceremony and the civil uh, for what they were at that time. And that's not to say that there aren't helpful um, laws that God gave the Jews for social order that we shouldn't practice today. There are very helpful principles in here. God's smart, smart God. Uh, he knows how to help man get along in, in this world. But they're not binding on us. They were custom-made, if you will, for Israel. I wanted to make sure that we're clear on that with ceremony and so forth because it makes a difference in how we apply this. So the temporary external beauty comes internal and it becomes... Not just internal, but eternal. The new covenant is eternal. It's the last covenant. And it is unfolding before our very eyes. God is fulfilling the new covenant before our very eyes. It's, Paul's ministry is of the new covenant. It's not equipping to keep the old covenant in place. Now I want to wind down by pointing something out here that's very important. Again, where this is just an overview. To wet your whistle. Paul was very clear on his mission. The Spirit of God called him to specifically minister with the new covenant. He was always clear on that. And here's how he describes it in Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So I'm God's servant, Apostle Paul. God has revealed something to me. It's new. It was hinted at previously. But it has never been revealed by God in the way that I am about to share with you. It's, it's a mystery that I am going to unfold by God's will. And the mystery is 
that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is huge. we're, We're not used to the Jewish customs. We're not living in that day. So we don't feel the impact. But that is tremendous what God has just revealed to humanity. Because in the Old Testament, the way you got to God was through the Jewish people. Yeah, you can join in our worship. Let me show you how to present yourself to God through the temple. But you did have to adopt some Jewish practices to become the people of God. And what Paul is saying is you don't have to be Judaized anymore. You're a part of the promise as you are. That it, you're, like the, the promises are yours. That is so incredible. That you don't have to do the ceremonies. You don't have to do the ceremonies. I mean, it just changes the ceremony and civil law. It changes how people worship God. Now it's all about Christ. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? He'll tell the Corinthians as well. So now the whole idea of worship and temple and what it means to offer sacrifices, that's all changed under the new covenant. You have immediate and direct access to God as you are when the veil is removed and you repent. So that's how we are this morning. We have direct access to God. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to a priest. And that's all the blessing that God brought to us through Jesus Christ, his son. It was hard for the Jews to grasp this. And I, and I granted it would be hard for me in that day as well. Because they say, yeah, if you can become one of us, you can become a Christian or believer, but you've got to become one of us first. And Paul says, uh-uh, this is the new revelation. Absolutely incredible. It's the freedom that the gospel has brought to the world. And the old covenant was ratified by the blood of animals. The new covenant is ratified by the blood of Christ. And we celebrate that every time we take communion. This is the covenant, the cup of my blood. This is the bread, my body broken for you. It's the new covenant. It's the only covenant that is in effect. And that's why the Apostle Paul, again, in the first book or letter to the Corinthians, he lists off all his Jewish credentials. And boy, was he was the Jew of Jews. He had the credentials. But then where where does he land under the light or the ministry of the new covenant? In 2 2, 1 Corinthians 2 2, he says, I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him. What? Crucified. That's what he is zealous about. That's his life. He's, He's obsessed in a healthy way, if you will. It's all about Christ now. Everything that the Old Testament pointed to is Christ, the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He is absolutely consumed with that now. That's his mission, to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Not the legalism, not the ceremonies, not the rituals, not the rites. If if they're looked at wrong, they actually get in the way and they are a hindrance. But it's Christ and Christ crucified. Crucified. So the old covenant, God gives the people the law. He gives them his words, his will. And the people said, okay, this sounds great. We'll keep it. We'll do it. But they couldn't. They couldn't. So words, 
good words, holy words, even divine words, words from the mouth of God in and of themselves did not bring salvation because the sinful nature that we're born with cannot rise to that standard. We need something outside of us. And that something was the spirit of God that does produce salvation. That is the only agency. You see where it left mankind good holy standards that they were not able to keep. Paul says there was a lot of ministry that took place in the Old Testament. But guess what he called it? A ministry of death. And then I think in verse 9, a ministry of condemnation. Now we're going to look at that next time actually. It's a powerful ministry taking place that the law performs. And it's a ministry of death. But Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's the Spirit of God. When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, it's because God has said it and made it so by the power of his spirit. The old, the covenants, they're not, they're not intended to be in competition. They complement one another. It's just one is more glorious than the other now. One fades and one steps into the spotlight. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament. Don't have time to look at that now. We'll look at that two sermons from now. There were Old Testament saints. So there's the contrast. There's an overview, the drone view, if you will. The rich manna from the royal treasury. The letter in itself is a killer. But now that we have the consummate truth in the saving gospel, that's what we preach. That's what we minister. Salvation by Christ through faith alone. Glory to God this morning that we are participants in the promise of the new covenant. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning.